You came to church today and you notice there's a pink stripe or two on the, the worship bulletin. All of our worship team today wearing pink. I'm not in the habit of wearing pink in the pulpit at all, but with a little uh, ribbon as a reminder to all of us that October is National Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Too much cancer in this community. We live in the crossfire of the enemy anywhere on this planet anymore. Not just breast cancer, cancers. Our, our, our friends, our, our loved ones, our family, some of you right now are battling cancer. Nobody knows but you and your doctor. These pink ribbons are a reminder that we believe God's promise, I will do a new thing, is the promise to also before heaven work through medical science, work through the brightest minds on this planet, constantly in search of a cure for cancer. It is, it is what we all, we all fear. And we pray, dear God, before heaven, can you please find the cure? And so we pray. Those of you that are battling, we battle beside you. We fight with you. Don't you ever give up. We journey with you. And the pink is the assurance that one day God will declare no more cancer, no more disease, no more pain. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. But until he comes, we battle on with you. I got a letter from a friend of mine who is in prison. The letter has forced me to rethink the relationship between grace and disgrace. Because surely if God is going to do a new thing in our midst, surely it is time for that new thing to affect our relationships as well. Isn't it? I'll share that letter with you in just a moment, but first let's pray. Oh God, do a new thing. We wear pink declaring our hope that even in this life you might find, you might release through medical science that new thing. We need it. Ultimately, you get the last word. We understand. But even in this life, Father, and what about our relationships? What can you do new? We need healing inside and out. So in the few moments we have left to, to commune with you through Holy Scripture, speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the Anglo-American poet, W.H. Auden, who wrote these words. I know nothing except what everyone knows. If there, when grace dances, I should dance. What is there about grace that compels us all to seek its embrace? I mean, here you have what critics call one of the greatest writers of the 20th century confessing, I know nothing. What do you mean you know nothing? you got a very bright mind. No, I know nothing except. Provocative way of declaring to us that what he is about to say touches on the greatest truth of all. If I know nothing else, this much I know is what he's saying. I know nothing. I'll put it on the screen for you. I know nothing except what everyone knows. If there, when grace dances, I should dance. 
For surely every one of us knows today that if grace were to walk through that door, we would joyfully embrace it. It would be a tragedy to let him come in and miss the moment. For to not embrace grace when it is present, that would be unthinkable, would it not? Just ask Jacob. Jacob, liar and cheat, in the arms of his midnight assailant who cries out that he will not let grace go unless you bless me. Just ask David, murderer, adulterer, king, refusing to let grace go unless you create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Just ask Manasseh, king, evil, the incarnation of evil debauchery and debased apostasy, sobbing in that Assyrian dungeon until grace rattled the keys and opened the door. Just ask Gomer, Gomer, prostitute, the epitome of love's runaway rejection, coming home the last time for good in the strong arms of grace. What is there about grace that compels us to seek its embrace? Had it Auden put it? I know nothing except what everyone knows. If there, when grace dances, I should dance. Philip Yancey, one of the bright evangelical journalists of this day, whose writings have stopped for some curious reason, and I hope and pray they have not dried up, Yancey once spent an entire book wrestling over the query, what's so amazing about grace? Whole book on grace. And then he, he comes to a definition. I'll put it on the screen for you. This is Yancey. Put it on the screen. Grace makes its appearance in so many forms that I, he writes, that I have trouble defining it. I am ready, though, to attempt something like a definition of grace in relation to God. Now, the italics are his. Here we go. Here comes his definition. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics and renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools, no amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes, and, and now here comes the rest of his defini definition, and grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love, end quote. Boy, we got we to get that definition right now while it's fresh in our minds. Grab your study guide, will you? Brand new study guide today. This is a fill-in-the-blank study guide. One of you scribbled on the Connect card last week. Hey, where are those fill-in-the-blank study guides? This one's for you, all right? We got it now. Pull out your study guide. Oh, you don't have one. Okay, we got some great and friendly ushers. Young and not so young, and here they come your way. Bless you. Thank you. Hold your hand up. If you don't have a study guide, you'll want, you'll want the quotations in this one. Hold your hand up. Up in the balcony as well on this holiday, holiday weekend. Glad to have you here. And those of you, by the way, who are, <clears throat> who are watching right now on television, we're delighted to have you as well. Let me give you a website. You can get the same study guide just in a split second. You've got your laptop there. If you're live streaming, of course, your laptop is already on and running. Here's our website. Put it on the screen, www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for a miniseries that actually is ending today. It's ending. The title of the miniseries, The Galilean. Title of this fifth part, final part, Grace Notes for Disgrace. So when you see that little title, then it says study guide under it. You click on and you'll have the same study guide. And by the way, if you're watching on, on the screen, you forget something and you miss it, we go by too fast, the answers are all there at the bottom of that uh, study guide online only. Okay? So yeah, the rest of you don't look at the end. There's nothing there. So you just uh, hang in there. 
But if you miss one, you can go, you can go today and uh, pull it up. You can look. Good. Everybody has it? Let's go. Uh, right there, title, title quotation, the two of them, Auden and Yancey. First, W.H. Auden, I know nothing except what everyone knows. If there, if I'm there when grace comes through that door, I tell you what, I know this. If there, when grace dances, I should dance. And now Philip Yancey. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. You're not going to change. He's not going to change towards you by your behavior. It will not change him, yea or nay. There is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And now the flip side, and grace also means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less, end quote. Case in point, the Galilean. So here's a question for you. I want you to answer this question in your mind. Which would you rather be friends with, a loud-mouthed, blue-collar braggart or a suave? Do you say suave or do you say suave? Okay. A suave, a suave, I just want to know if you're awake, a suave MBA-type executive. Which one would you rather be friends with? Jesus was friends with them both. Peter and Judas. You could hardly have picked a greater mismatch than these two, which, by the way, is why when the Galileans sent out his disciples two by two, there is no record of these two ever, ever, ever traveling together. They would have killed each other. They would have driven each other to distraction. Keep them, keep, them, keep them away. And yet, by terrible, a terrible coincidence of fate, both young men will betray their truest, the truest friend they ever had on the same night. Before the Galileans' death, the details of their duplicitous treachery are not so much our concern today. Rather, it is the response of the Galilean to their moral collapse that intrigues our, our brooding. Let's go. Open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. Both boys are there. Matthew chapter 26. You didn't bring a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you. What's the page number? Page 669. Matthew chapter. This is, this is one of those stunning collections of narratives all bound into one. Matthew chapter 26. I'm in the NIV, the New International Version. Whatever you have on your tablet or smartphones, fine with me. Let's go. Matthew chapter 26. Let's pick it up in verse 20. Verse 20. When evening came... Okay, this is the Lord's Supper. This is the Last Supper, all right? When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you, one of you will betray me. Oh, they were very sad, verse 22, and began to say to him one after, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. You don't mean me. You don't mean me, Lord, do you? No, 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 no. Jesus replied, verse 23, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, everybody's gone around and said, not me, not me. One person has not said a word, and all eyes are now on that one. And he speaks up, verse 25, then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, oh, please, you surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. Verse 31, and then Jesus told them, this very night 
you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Not me. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And keep reading. All the other disciples said the same. Let the record show that both young men, in fact, all 12 young men, Declared in no uncertain terms that the Galilee, what the Galilean had predicted about them all will simply not come true. Not me, not me, not me, not me, not me, not me. And yet just a few hours later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, while all the disciples slept, while Jesus is pouring out his heart in blood-tinged anguish, the next scene unfolds. Drop down to verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, verse 48, the betrayer had arranged a, arranged a signal between them. The one, that I, the one that I kiss is the man. You arrest him. Verse 49, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, watch this, never forget this. Jesus replied, verse 50, do what you came for, friend. Friend. Did you catch that? Grace called him friend. Wow. Desire of Ages captures this moment with these words. You'll have to fill it in in your study guide. Now Judas... Pretends to have no part with them. Coming close to Jesus, he steps away from the mob. Coming close to Jesus there in the flickering orange torchlight. Coming close to Jesus, he takes Jesus' hand as a familiar friend. And with the words, Hail, Master, he kisses him repeatedly and appears to weep as if in sympathy with Jesus in his peril. Jesus said to him, Friend, write that in. Jesus said to him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? The old King James. Jesus' voice trembled with sorrow as he added, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? This appeal should have aroused the conscience of the betrayer and touched his stubborn heart, but honor, fidelity, and human tenderness had forsaken him. He stood bold and defiant, showing no disposition to relent. He had given himself up to Satan, and he had no power to resist him. Jesus did not refuse the traitor's kiss, end quote. He could have. Oh, yes, he could have. You, he, he could have. You whitewashed Filthy thief, don't you think I know you were the one that's been pilfering our common purse? I knew you were the one who would turn out to be the turncoat. You despicable sinner, may you rot in hell. And by the way, if, if Mel Gibson, and that had actually happened, and Mel Gibson had actually worked that into the scene there in Gethsemane, every theater on earth, they, there would have been this, this giant applause. You go, Jesus, get him. Right? Of course. But instead, Jesus' voice trembles in sorrow as he calls his betrayer friend. 
How did Yancey put it? Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. But there's more to this tragic night, sadly. Drop down to verse 69. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. Yo, you, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. Three times now, Peter is going to be accosted about his relationship with the man on trial. And three times... The darkest hour just before dawn, Peter will deny it. Finally, time number three, verse 74, then, then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know that blankety blank, 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 blank man at all. And immediately, how does your Bible read? And immediately, the rooster crowed. Turn the air blue with fisherman obscenities. It's only Dr. Luke who captures the very next moment. The air is blue. Peter hears the rooster, and it's all back to him. And instinctively, just you know how you do it, you're, just, you're guilty. Instinctively, he wants to make sure Jesus has not heard any of this. He turns, and Luke now describes, look at this, Luke chapter 22, verse 61, and the Lord turned... And looked straight at Peter. He had heard the whole blue thing. Desire of Ages picks this moment up. While the degrading oaths were fresh upon Peter's lips and the shrill crowing of the cock was still ringing in his ears, the Savior turned from the frowning judges and looked full on his poor disciple. At the same time, Peter's eyes, you know, when somebody's looking at you, you just, you just know, and so you just instinctively turn around. Peter's eyes are drawn to his master. In that gentle countenance, he read deep pity and sorrow, but there was no anger there. The sight of that pale, suffering face, those quivering lips, that look of compassion, and would you write it in, please? Forgiveness already. Already. That look of compassion and forgiveness pierced Peter's heart like an arrow. Conscience was aroused. Memory was active. Peter had just declared that he knew not Jesus, but now he realized with bitter grief how well his Lord knew him and how accurately Jesus had read his heart, the falseness of which was unknown even to himself. A tide of memories rushed over Peter, the Savior's tender mercy, his kindness and long-suffering, his gentleness and patience toward his erring disciples. All was remembered once once more, he looks up at the master and sees a sacrilegious hand raised to slap Jesus across the face. Unable longer to endure the scene, he rushed heartbroken from the hall. He pressed on in solitude and darkness. He knew not and cared not where he was going. At last, he found himself in Gethsemane and on the very spot where Jesus had poured out his soul in agony to his father, Peter fell upon his face and wished that he might die. I know how Peter's feeling. Why you would go to that spot? When I was a kid, we were home on furlough from Japan. I was about five. My 
Kid Brothers 3, Greg is 3, and Mom and Dad took us up to Oshawa, where my grandfather was, was, was uh, leading the church, and they, they dropped us off. They wanted us boys to stay with Grandma and Grandpa because Mom and Dad wanted to do some traveling on their own. And I, I remember the, the morning my parents left. I said, I never talked about this, but I saw it, just could see it in my mind. It, they're, they're pulling out of the driveway, and you boys be good, and you know how it is. And I was so homesick in that instant that they drove away that I went racing back into the house in tears up the stairs to the second floor of that, that home in Oshawa. And I found the bed where my parents had slept for those few nights they were there. And I threw myself on the pillow. And your parents, every child knows your parents have a smell that is uniquely theirs. And I smelled it in that pillow and I just sobbed. That's Peter. He goes back to the ground. He knows that his master has been there and he just sobs and sobs and sobs. What have I done? How did Yancey put it? Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. But there's one more scene for these two broken young men. Go right across the page to Matthew 27. Pick it up in verse 3. Now when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said. I have betrayed innocent blood. And they, in cold calculation, reply, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. Then verse 5, Judas threw the money into the temple. And you can hear the silver scattering across that hard floor. He threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and hanged himself. Desire of Ages describes this moment as well. Judas now cast himself at the feet of Jesus, acknowledging him to be the Son of God and entreating him to deliver himself. The Savior did not re reproach his betrayer. He knew that Judas did not repent. His confession was forced from his guilty soul by an awful sense of condemnation and a looking for of judgment. But Judas felt no deep, heartbreaking grief that he had betrayed the spotless Son of God and denied the Holy One of Israel. Yet, now watch this, yet, Jesus spoke no word of condemnation. He looked pityingly upon Judas and said, For this hour came I into the world. End quote. Two young men, both betrayers of their friend, the Galilean. And the difference? Grace. Grace. Not because one was offered grace and the other wasn't. No, no, no. Both, let us be clear, both were, all, both were recipients of grace. Because what Jesus said with his lips to Judas, he says with his eyes to Peter, friend, friend. Look, there was nothing they could do to make him love them more. There was nothing they had done to make him love them less. Friend, grace. Same Galilean. Same God. Same grace. But only one had the courage to believe such grace could really, truly save him, and he repented. But the other, 
The other simply could not believe that grace could ever forgive him, and he committed suicide. The Christian counselor, David Seaman, have three of his books in my library. He puts it this way. I'll put it on the screen for you. You'll need to fill it in. Many years ago, this is Siemens writing, many years ago I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of, mo of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. Here we go. Number one, the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. Would you write that word in, please? It's a key word, unconditional. You can't make me love you more. You can't make me love you le less. I am maxed out for you. Unconditional. Failure to understand the unconditional grace and forgiveness of God. And number two, flip side of the coin, the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. Failure to love other people that way. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated the level of our emotions, end quote. Oh, we got it all down. Unmerited favor. I know what grace is. Unmerited favor, but because I have not experienced that from God. It's not that God hasn't given it to me. I won't let him give it to me. I am convinced I have to do something to earn his love, to make him happy. Good little girl, good little boy. And because I don't understand unconditional grace. I can't give it. I cannot give it. I hold a condition over you. I say, I will if you change. I will if you change. I will if you get your act together. I don't know the meaning of unconditional grace. How could I show it if I haven't experienced it? Impossible. That's Seaman's point. Oh, we talk a good game of grace. We don't know it. And so we can't give it. Intellectually, even theologically, biblically, yes. Existentially, emotionally, no. I can't embrace it, and that's why I don't offer it. I received a letter from a friend of mine who's in prison. He asked for his membership to be dropped in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I have done wrong, clearly, and I have sinned. I have sought God's forgiveness and have received it, unworthy though I am. But I am afraid there are those who cannot forgive me, and my belonging to your community of faith would only antagonize them more." Really? Really? Are you serious? You cannot forgive her? You cannot forgive him? You cannot forgive them? Are you serious? Dwight, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what people have done to me. Why should I? Hey. Whoa, whoa. They sent Jesus to his death. The one who sent him to his death, he says, friend, friend. His eyes say the same to Peter. Don't you tell me you've suffered too much to be able to forgive. You, you, you must have suffered more than the Lord himself. How did you do that? Please. I can't. Not after what happened to me. I will not. Intellectually, we accept grace. 
jot it down, but emotionally, we do not bestow grace. How sad. Now, Anne Lamott in her delightful little book, Traveling Mercies, here's how, she, here's how she graphically describes it. Not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. It doesn't get any stronger and pungent than that. You drink the poison and now I'm going to watch that rat die. No, the rat will die and that's you. You have refused to forgive and you die. You see, forgiveness, this grace for disgrace, this grace for disgrace, it's not for, the, it's not for the one you're supposed to forgive. The healing is for you. You're not going to change anything for him, for her, for them. The healing is for you. You're drinking the rat. Stop it. You're drinking the rat poison. This is crazy. You're waiting for them to die and you've drunk the poison. It doesn't make any sense at all. Because disgrace, when we feel it ourselves, is not logical. The only healing for disgrace is to drop the dis. Since 1980, Americans have coined this word dis. It's from the word disrespect. It means to condemn. It means to criticize. It means to find fault. So you want to keep finding fault with that person? You want to continue to criticize? You want to judge that person? Then the dis will never be dropped in your life, and you become the disgrace. No, not that person. You become the disgrace because you won't drop the dis. George Herbert put it this way, he who cannot forgive another breaks the bridge over which he must pass himself. Shakespeare in his Merchant of Venice, how shalt thou hope for mercy, rendering none? You won't give mercy. How do you hope for mercy in the end if you won't give it? You're, you've drunk the rat poison and it's killed only you. Only you. You haven't hurt. You thought you were hurting. I'm going to make him pay. I'm going to make her pay. You haven't hurt them. You've killed yourself. Now, how bright is that? Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. As you forgive others, so I will forgive you. Let it go. It's the Lord's Prayer. You pray it every single day of your life. Maybe. Forgive us our debts as. One writer described that word as as the toughest word in the English language. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. No forgiveness of debtors, no forgiveness for you. Jesus, jot it down. Jesus, the Lord Jesus himself put it this way, freely you have received, freely give. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you, please, is it not time for God to do a new thing in our own relationships as well? Isn't it time? How can we pray for a new thing out there when there's no new thing in here? It's time. It is time. Grace. As it did for Peter, it must do for us. Drive us to the cross. For it is only at Calvary that grace can do a new thing deep inside of us. Only at the cross. Judas never got to the cross. He took his life too soon. Just another hour or two, Judas. You could have found what Peter found, but he, 
He cut his life short. Disgrace. Did not know that the dis could be dropped and all you would have would be grace in the end. So he killed himself. Heartbroken Peter, driven to the cross. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. As our ages, it is the gospel of the grace of God alone. Alone. That can uplift the soul. Amazing grace. Peter, 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 Peter. Do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Good. Follow me. For I know nothing except what everyone knows. If there when grace dances, I should dance. Let us pray. O oh God, disgrace. We have lived with it. Again and again we've come to you, and the dis is dropped, and all we receive is grace. Then, Father, even as we have freely received, should we not freely give when they come to us? Drop the dis, and all that's left is grace. Oh, God, please. We need to know the truth, and the truth will set us free. The truth about grace, the grace of the Galilean, the grace of God. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.